Welcome again to Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service. And we're pleased to have you along with us on this podcast where we explore the lives, stories, joys, and challenges of members of the Notre Dame family as they seek after holiness. I'm pleased to be joined this week by Lene Urban, who is a 2008 graduate of the university who had a pretty unique experience when she was here as a student and has gone on to flourish in many ways. So, Lene, so pleased to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. It's an honor to be uh, joining you today. Absolutely. We're, we're so glad to have you. Could you start by giving a sense of your own background and upbringing, where you grew up, all those kinds of things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first things first, I'm a PK. I don't know if you're familiar with the term PK, Dan, um, no. but a PK stands for a pastor's kid. Okay. <laughs> I'm a pastor's kid. Got it. <laughs> so shout out to all my other PKs out Got there. Got it. That's nice. Um, yeah, but basically being a PK is a whole, in, you know, it's a whole entire identity um, because not only are your parents the pastors of the church that you attend, but there is some unspoken expectation sure. of how you're supposed to carry yourself, you know, how you're supposed to behave. Um, there are always eyes, you know, that are looking up at the pulpit at your parents that are ministering and then eyes looking at you <laughs> sitting right. in the congregation to see if you're paying attention to the sermons and the messages. So I essentially spent my entire childhood in church. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in church literally, and I, I'm not exaggerating, five days a week. I was there on Sundays. I was there for Bible studies and choir rehearsals and uh, and and the then the children's ministry and you know all of Sunday school, all of these things. So being in church, being surrounded by uh, spirituality growing up, that was a huge part of my childhood, um, especially with my mom's side of the family, um, because they grew up in a very religious home. Mm -hmm. All of my uncles and aunts, you know, ended up going into ministry. So we just came from a very churchy. Sure. <laughs> it was a very churchy family. <laughs> uh, and so that's that's pretty much the environment that I was raised in. Well, it sounds like uh, one that's very rich for faith. What particular denomination was that a part of, and how did that fit into the context of the faith that you came to understand as your own? Yeah, so my church was non-denominational mm -hmm. growing up, so we didn't um, exactly, you know, fit into a specific denomination like Baptist or Methodist. Um, we were very much just focused on on following the guidelines in the Bible mm -hmm. um, and on creating a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So that is, I'm actually grateful to have grown up in a non-denominational church because when I went through my journey in trying to figure out my own faith and my own spirituality, there weren't a lot of rules mm -hmm. that I was confined to. Um, so there, there wasn't a lot of like suffering through breaking out of, you know, certain traditions yeah. that I thought had to be a part of my faith. It really allowed me to um, explore my own spirituality and come to 
come to a faith that is very uniquely my own. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. What other aspects of your childhood were particularly important and that you felt really shaped you into the person that you've become today? You know, I think uh, besides being a PK, (laughs) being very churchy growing up, I think my parents, their emphasis on just relationship and love and setting expectations and standards not just for my behavior, um, but then also setting standards academically, mm-hmm. um, setting expectations, uh, especially uh, socially, and then being very rewarding when those expectations were met, uh-huh. um, but also being supportive if those expectations weren't met. They really invested their time into myself and my little sister and making sure that we had the tools that we needed to grow up to be well-rounded kids. Um, So we grew up around a lot of PKs who only knew church. Mm -hmm. The only recreational time they spent was inside the church building. (laughs) And so we grew up with a lot of kids that didn't know anything outside of church. Whereas my sister and I, you know, we were able to not just spend our time in church, but spend our time doing other activities, um, playing sports and joining a dance company. And, you know, I I played softball in high school growing up. My sister joined the cheerleading team and and my parents took us on a lot of trips. We did a lot of traveling. Mm -hmm. We were able to kind of break out of, you know, the the small borough that we were raised in and be able to create experiences that allowed us to see at a very young age that the world was a lot bigger than, you know, just where we grew up. So my sister and I were very fortunate to have parents that wanted us to be well-rounded, that wanted to send us away to college and adulthood with really positive experiences of what it felt like to be, you know, in a loving, supportive family. That's such a gift. Did you stay in the same place for most of your childhood or where exactly did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in Staten Island, New York. Um, I was born in Long Island, moved to Staten Island when I was three years old. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much where I stayed. (laughs) That was the only place I lived all the way until um, I went away to college, then um, going away to Notre Dame. Yeah, so let's get into that. Notre Dame might seem a faraway place from Staten Island. How did you come to hear about Notre Dame and what made you particularly interested in coming here? So funny story. <laughs> uh, my dad was always a huge Notre Dame football fan. Uh-huh. I actually have very faint memories of us visiting Notre Dame's campus when I was uh, six, seven years old. Yeah. Um, really young, maybe a little bit, maybe eight, maybe seven or eight years old. Uh, my dad loved Notre Dame football. Huge. He would watch the games. He had an old school, like 80s Notre Dame, uh, like sports jacket. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just uh, loved the University of Notre Dame. And so when it was time to start applying to colleges, I knew that, you know, just for my dad, (laughs) I knew that I wanted to apply to Notre Dame. So that's how I heard about the university. Uh Um, I applied to some other schools, but it was really uh, actually going to visit the campus to spend a weekend there 
I got a feel for the the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I got a feel for what the the campus was like and the camaraderie between the students, the camaraderie of the school. And I knew that after visiting that weekend that Notre Dame was where I belonged. Wonderful. Did your experience as a student in those early days match those expectations that you had of feeling welcomed? Oh, absolutely. And I think that that I think that that's what started my experience off um, in such a positive way was I really wanted to go to university where I felt like I was a part of community. Mm-hmm. And that weekend that I spent, you know, my senior year of high school, when I went to visit the the freshmen and the sophomores and some of the upperclassmen that I met, they really like embraced us. Mm-hmm. They embraced me. They made me feel like I was already a student, even <laughs> though I still had, even though I still had some time to graduate. Yeah. And then that's exactly how I felt when I went to Notre Dame when I first started my freshman year, just a day or two, you know, after moving into the dorms, I already made a collection of friends, um, (laughs) a a community that I became connected with and became very close with. So yeah, definitely the expectation matched the reality when I got there. Good, good. That's great to hear. Now, this aspect of coming from a non-denominational background and coming to a Catholic university, what was that like for you and how did you kind of make sense of that? Yeah, I didn't know a ton about Catholicism before coming to the university. Um, I, I knew a little bit, sure. definitely. I, but I think what uh, what I think what made me comfortable was the fact that I could express my faith, and and nobody would look at me sideways. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I remember, for example, when my mom came to when my parents came to pick me up for winter break, and in my dorm. Um, outside of the window, somebody in like Christmas lights um, just wrote out "Happy Birthday, Jesus." Right, and I remember my mom just being like so thankful in that moment that I could go to a university in an environment where somebody could write, you know, somebody could write that out in nice big lights, and nobody's offended by it. Right, you know, it's not <laughs> something that you would have to take down. Um, so being a part of a faith based university, a faith-based community actually inspired me to start kind of creating my spirituality and making it my own. Mm-hmm. Not something that I had to be embarrassed about, not something that I had to hide, um, not something that I couldn't find like-minded people, you know, in terms of faith-based people. It's like everywhere everywhere I went, my roommates, my friends, um, they were all people of faith. So that was something I think that was really important to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, often we talk about diversity here at Notre Dame and wanting to, you know, be enriched by that diversity. But sometimes I know, I've at least heard from students coming from diverse backgrounds that that can be intimidating. Did you feel that uh, coming from the Black community or what was that experience like? I think because of the way that I was raised. And then also a lot of the experiences that I had when I was younger. Yeah. My parents took us to a lot of unfamiliar places. My parents took us um, into communities where we, you know, were the only people of color. Mm-hmm. And so that wasn't something that made me uncomfortable. It wasn't something that was foreign to me. It was something that 
um, I actually embraced because one of the things that I learned in those experiences when I was younger was that there was just, there was a lot to learn from people that didn't look like me. Yeah. Um, there was a lot to learn from people that were raised in, you know, maybe in, in the country, you mm-hmm. know, raised. <laughs> I, I remember just meeting a ton of people from Texas. I never known anyone from Texas. And, yeah. and so to experience like the Texas pride, I mean, these Students from Texas loved their state. That's and right. Was, Look at those like, flags up. <laughs> oh my goodness. Like I'd never seen such state pride. And I got a kick my first two weeks at Notre Dame, meeting kids from Texas and, and from California and from Florida. Um, I really embraced to me, and you know, this may not sound popular, and I, I know that there are people that probably wouldn't agree with this. But to me, I felt like I was having a diverse experience meeting all of these different students sure. from all over the country, some from even you know all over the world, like international students, and realizing, getting to know them that, hey, like, you know, the student from Cali is not <laughs> the same as the student from Texas, exactly. you know, or who's not the same as the student from Chicago. And that it was so it was really enjoyable for me. It wasn't intimidating. I actually loved being able to meet so many different students from so many different places. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear and mirrored my own experience as a student, you know, from Western Kansas that I felt uh, I was meeting a lot of lot of variety of people, you know, coming to Notre Dame's campus and was certainly enriched by that. I know music is a part of your life and was able to be part of your experience as an undergraduate. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I was really excited to um, try out for the marching band my freshman year and Mm -hmm. to be accepted along with your wife, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, to be able to play uh, piccolo for the marching band and then also to try out for the jazz band as a vocalist Mm -hmm. and and to also be a part of the jazz band. And music was something that was a part of my life up until that point, until the fourth grade. So to be able to continue something like that from childhood all the way through my college experience, it was an honor. It Mm -hmm. it really was. Um, It created, I think, just even another layer um, another level of experience at the university that I don't think I would have had if I hadn't have participated in the marching band and the jazz band. Yeah, and I think something that's really wonderful, at least about the music programs at Notre Dame, is that there's not a lot of people who are music majors, but they just love music and there's an outlet for people to participate in them. Yeah, and that's I think that's the great part because, yeah, you know, not all of us have the aspirations, right, to to do music, I guess, as a career or to make money playing music after college, but to still be able to have that experience and to still be around, like you said, um, just other students that are just as passionate mm-hmm. about, you know, continuing their music experience in college. I mean, it was really great. Yeah. I always thought it was funny that as a member of the marching band in high school, maybe that was kind of a niche thing and people didn't really pay attention to it but to be part of the marching band at Notre Dame it was almost like we were celebrities when we walked around campus what were some what were some fun memories from the marching band I I would have to say the the first game or the first march out 
for our first home game. Oh my goodness. I, I mean, to be able to wake up the campus with the march through through campus for that that first, you know, early morning rehearsal to walk through the campus on game day and have complete strangers stop and ask you to take a photo with them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the 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 very first like, you know, run out of the tunnel onto the field, that very first game. It just like electrifying those like being a part of the marching band created some memories from my entire college experience that I don't think I'll ever forget. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, you know, my mom or my dad may find an old recording from <laughs> how many years ago is that Dan? <laughs> Too many. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Very many years ago. And, you know, they'll find a recording where, where the camera would, you know, during the halftime show would, would zoom in on my face right. and, you know, I would, I would be on camera for a good seven seconds <laughs> and just the, just the excitement, even also then for my family and my friends back home to be watching a Notre Dame football game and the camera, you know, goes over to the Notre Dame marching band and, and catch glimpses of us, you know, yelling and shouting on live TV. I mean, uh, so many, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you how many memories I had, but they were just all positive ones. Well, it could be a whole nother podcast, but glad yeah, let's that, do it. <laughs> glad that you're sharing that aspect with us. I know a lot of people have, have great memories of the band or admire the band. So I wanted to share that with them. What were some other important moments for you while you were at Notre Dame? Definitely getting connected to the African-American community mm -hmm. on campus um, just right away. There was like a, a weekend retreat within the first couple of weeks that we got there where we were all able to, to stay together and to participate in some activities together and really establish um, a community um, right away at the very beginning of freshman year. That was really powerful. Yeah. Um, in the same way that it was amazing to meet, you know, just various students from all over the country. It was amazing to meet other African-American students and students of color from all over the country and to be able to kind of compare and contrast, you know, our experiences um, growing up in the different states and cities that we were from. I think that the bond that I was able to form with a lot of the students, and then especially with some of my uh, some of the students that were also in the marching band, mm -hmm. you know, also being students of color in the marching band, um, some of my best friends I was able to connect with from that weekend, and also being members of the marching band, that was really uh, being able to establish that community right away. As soon as I got to campus, that was another very important memory from my freshman year. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I'm so glad to know that that was your experience. Now, your life took a surprising turn while you were at Notre Dame. Could you share that story with us, please? Yeah, so um, everything was kind of, everything was going along. I was getting adjusted. It took a little time, definitely, to um, just adjust to, number one, being in the Midwest, <laughs> um, being away from my family, um, adjust to the responsibility of being a college student with, with no one breathing down my back, like, mm -hmm. you know, learning how to hold myself accountable. 
Um, and I felt like I was, I had just started really making that transition in my sophomore year when at the very end of my sophomore year, um, I found out that I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And um, my then boyfriend, now husband, we you know, started. We started dating. He was also in marching band. We started dating in our freshman year, and at the end of sophomore year, it was actually once I got home for the start mm. of summer break that I found that I was pregnant. Okay. And so that was, um, gosh, that was a a punch to the gut for a a number of different reasons. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of the college experience, I had a lot of plans for, you know, my junior and senior years. Um, Like I wanted to try out to be a drum major. I Mm -hmm. had actually tried out to be a drum major at the end of sophomore year, you know, for junior year. And that's something that I wanted to work on and try out again for in junior year to, you know, potentially become a drum major in senior year. I also wanted to be an RA. I wanted to be a resident assistant. I wanted to give back the level of support that I had received as a freshman. That's something that I dreamed of doing, you know, my senior year. Mm-hmm. And and so there was there was an immediate sense of mourning that I felt when I found out that I was pregnant and that I felt like my entire, the remaining of my entire college experience was over. Mm -hmm. Um, That now with, you know, having, having to bring a life into the world and, and whatever that looks like, because I had already decided at the beginning that I was going to give birth, you know, I was going to bring life into the world. Mm -hmm. um, But, but it would be completely different, not at all what I had originally intended and what I planned and so, you know, after the initial kind of mourning, then came the, oh my gosh, the consequences. Yeah. Number one, like the administ- the university conssequences. I am not supposed to be, you know, having sex outside of marriage. Surely right. the president <laughs> of the university himself is going to <laughs> write my dismissal letter. Surely, you know, Notre Dame will no longer allow me. Um, to be a student. And, and, and so there, I mean, there were just so many questions, so many things. Um, and then to have to then break the news to my parents, mm-hmm. you know, my parents who were pastors to find out that their daughter who was, was supposed to be the model, you know, the, mm-hmm. the example of the way that you do things, the way that you do life, to have to break that news to them, it was a very it, it was a very tumultuous time um, during that summer in between my sophomore and junior year when I found out I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's uh, really impactful. I can only imagine what that must have been like. You know, we live in a culture where sometimes life is seen as expendable. And sometimes there can be that pressure that makes it seem like, well, there's an easy solution to this, to not have the child. Did you feel any of that pressure? And how did you, how did you overcome that? Yeah. You know, I did, I, I, I had already determined, and this was um, just a, a moral that I had. I don't 
remember exactly at what point in my childhood I established this, but I had already determined that if I had ever gotten pregnant, especially outside of marriage, that um, I didn't believe in in having an abortion. I didn't believe mm-hmm. in terminating my pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, there was someone who, once they found out I was pregnant, there was someone who offered to pay for me mm-hmm. to terminate my pregnancy. And I, 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 but I knew that that wasn't an option, you mm-hmm. know, that, that just, I, I couldn't separate my choices you know, to be um, to be sexually active, I couldn't separate that choice from this the the choice to terminate the result of that. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there, yeah. there that wasn't even it wasn't even a consideration. Mm-hmm. So I didn't feel uh, pressure in that regards uh, in terms of terminating the pregnancy, but I did consider, and I did seriously consider, and I did feel at the time that adoption was the only way for me to be able to, was the only way for this baby to be able to have a a quality life. Uh Um, And for me to be able to continue with the, with the plans that I had of, of finishing school, of graduating and, and moving on with my career. So um, I would say that the pressure during that summer before going back to Notre Dame was very heavily on making adopted uh, making adoption plans. Okay. And kind of figuring out what that what that looks like and and, and getting the ball rolling and the process rolling with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of fear sometimes involved in these moments of crisis and well, what do I do and. All, all these uh, options are before you. You spoke about the fear of the university's response, but what was that experience actually like to talk with the, your hall staff or the university administration? What was the university's response? Yeah, so that summer I first did some research on Notre Dame's website to find out what the consequences were. Mm-hmm. And I was very, I felt, I guess supported in a way like it it felt like a huge relief like consumed me when I discovered that Notre Dame doesn't take any you know disciplinary action Mm -hmm. against students who you know who have children out of wedlock Mm -hmm. because because of Notre Dame's stance on life right and because of their gratitude for, you know, students choosing life and choosing to have their baby, you know, instead of terminate their pregnancy. And then I discovered that there was actually a whole entire department uh, (laughs) that supported students and that had all of these resources for a student, for student parents. Um, So that opened up uh, that, I mean, I felt like it almost felt like a hug Do you know what I mean? It felt Mm -hmm. like the university was like giving me a hug and like telling me, you know what? It's okay. We're still here to support you and we're still here to provide you the resources to become a Notre Dame graduate, you Mm -hmm. know, to still, uh, to still go to school and to support your family. And so that, that immediately was just a huge burden lifted off my shoulders. When I returned back to school, in the fall semester, I immediately um, told I 
told my rector, I told my RA, sat down with them, had a conversation. They were so supportive, so loving. My RA actually helped me um, figure out um, housing, you know, the housing that I could move into mm-hmm. once the baby was born. And so she actually helped me do that research and set up all of that information for me. And then <laughs> and then she also connected with a lot of the other students on my floor, you know, to set up like babysitting. Uh-huh. <laughs> <to> yeah. <laughs> set up. Uh, and so it was, I mean, there was a lot of support, uh, definitely from the university, definitely from the staff. I connected with my professors as I was getting closer to giving birth, connected with my professors to let them know what was going on. And they were all very supportive um, in terms of working with me and turning in assignments and and different things like that. I mean, it really just made the entire process. It it made me feel like I could actually do this. Mm -hmm. You know, it it made me feel like I wasn't alone and I didn't have to be this sort of wayward student out there by myself trying to survive and figure this out on my own. It really felt like I, I had the support of everyone um, to be able to to have my baby and to continue being a student at the same time. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. I, I do think in those moments, it is that feeling of being alone that sometimes leads people to rash decisions and decisions that they may at some point regret. And so I'm, like I said, just really grateful to to know that, that your experience was not that. What about your boyfriend and now husband, what was his role in all this and how did he kind of make sense of this and support you during that time? Yeah, he was very supportive. Um, you know, as soon as I found out that I was pregnant, I called him and let him know. And he told me that he was just there to support whatever decision that I I wanted to make, whether that decision was moving forward with adoption mm-hmm. um, or actually having the baby and keeping the baby. He he was ready and willing to do whatever whatever I, I pretty much decided that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't pressure me one way or the other. And so he was able also to sort of go to his rector and his RA when we returned this to school and let them know, you know what was going on. And they were also very supportive, his friends were very supportive. And so I think that that was also what made the process of like, you know, initially feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm all by myself. This is like, how could this happen to, okay, you know, I have all of these people behind my corner um, from all the way from his, you know, friends, from my friends, from the staff members on all sides and professors and instructors from all sides. Yeah, it was really, um, it, it just made it, like I said, it made it feel like we can do this and we can do it together. Yeah. And you mentioned that you were thinking about adoption, but you ended up choosing differently. How, what came into that decision and just what was it like having your daughter? Yeah, so it was really interesting that we 
we came to the conclusion, of course, being, I don't know, 18 or 19 and 20 year old college students. A lot of years of wisdom there. (laughs) Like, first of all, we were just in diapers ourselves. (laughs) What in the world? How in the world are we? I mean, we are just not prepared. So it logically, it made sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, we we are in no position financially. I mean, skill wise, we're not in a position to be able to raise a life. And so it just made logical sense uh, to look into adoption. And we actually met with an adoption agency in South Bend. We got our after classes. We met off campus with the representative. We got our profile set up. We started looking through families, Mm -hmm. looking at different profiles. And so we had started that process and we were moving right along. And it was probably around, I would say, my fifth month. Uh, So somewhere after 20 weeks or so, Mm -hmm. I I still to this day, and I tell this story, I've told this story multiple times, and I try to look back and think back and figure out, okay, what was it? Like, what happened? Yeah. And I still to this day, I can't remember. Um, But I just remember waking up on a Saturday morning, like, and kind of shooting out of bed, you know, just, uh, just jolting out of bed and saying to myself, I'm going to keep my baby. Okay. It, I, I don't know. I don't know where it came from. I don't know why. I know that I had had a dream of some sort. I don't remember what the dream was even when I woke up. Mm-hmm. All I knew is that I woke up just like literally randomly on that Saturday morning in the fifth month of my pregnancy. I said, I'm keeping my baby. And it, it, with such conviction. Yeah. Um, and I, I told myself, I will do whatever it is I have to do. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, whatever sacrifices I have to make, whatever it is, whatever decisions I have to make, I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure that I keep my baby and that my baby has everything that it needs mm-hmm. to be able to live and to thrive. And, and this is just what's going to happen. It's what I'm going to do. And so the next thing that I did was I told my then boyfriend, Chris, I was very nervous to tell him because we had already, like I said, started with the process. Sure. And we had already made the decision that we were going to go through with adoption. And so I was very, very nervous to tell him, but you know, I had to tell him and I, I sat him down. I said, you know what? Um, I know that this is not what we planned on, but I want to keep the baby. Mm-hmm. And I'm not asking you to stay. Okay. I'm not asking you to help me raise the baby. I'm I'm not asking for any support. I'm not asking for any money, like no, you know, financial support. Mm-hmm. I I can figure this out. I'm going to figure this out. But I just want to let you know that you know I want to keep the baby. And his response was almost like. It was almost as if he was offended that I would even consider him not being a part mm. of the baby's life yeah. and him not being there to help raise, you know, and support and take care. It's like, I remember his face was <laughs> like, like he was offended <laughs> that I would even think that he would just, you know, take me up on the offer to just disappear. Okay out of our lives. And and I remember him saying, no, we do this together. Wow. 
if that's the decision that you want to make, then that's what we're going to do. And we're going to do it together. Um, and I, you know what, Dan, I, after he said that it was like the clouds parted Yeah, the sun, you know what I'm saying? The mm-hmm. sun shined in. I felt like in that moment, God just like scooped both of us into his arms and was like, yes, my children, we're going to do this together. Mm. And this baby is going to have everything it absolutely needs Mm -hmm. and everything is going to be 100% okay. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I mean, some of your experiences of feeling inadequate and also also that dedication of, no, I'm going to do whatever it takes no matter what, I think there's a commonality there in any parent situation that we all, whenever kids come along, feel a little bit like, I know, I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing here. And also, I know that I'll do anything I can to love this child or these children and, yeah. and give all I can. So I think people will connect with that, even though they weren't faced maybe with some of the challenges that you and Chris were. Yeah. You mentioned God, and I obviously want to reconnect to that aspect of this story. How did this whole situation impact your and Chris's faith? You know what, Dan? When Amani was born, we did not spend a single dime on her Mm -hmm. for the first 12 months of her life. Mm -hmm. Everything, diapers, um, wipes, formula, clothes, for the whole entire first year of her life. They were all provided to us Mm -hmm. by friends and family and other students and staff, um, university staff members and professors. And what that showed us, what that did for our faith was it showed us that God wasn't mad at us. He wasn't angry with us. He, what it showed us was that our baby was actually his. Yeah. That was his child. And he was going to be responsible for providing for her. He, you know, God, the Lord was going to step in and be the one to uh, to make sure that our baby had everything that she needed mm-hmm. in order to survive, in order to thrive, and in order to be raised in a loving and supportive environment. Mm-hmm. And so that 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 provision, I think, you know, it's one thing to have faith in something that you can't see, um, but it's another thing for your faith to become real when, like, God steps in with tangible evidence of his love, mm-hmm. you know, with tangible physical evidence um, of his care and his support and his provision. And so I think our faith became something that um, we grabbed hold of as initially we, we started off thinking that we're inadequate, broke <laughs> college students <laughs> who have no idea what they're doing. And now they have to raise a life to, oh, no, no, God's like, no, God's got us. God's going to give us the wisdom um, he's going to give us the support. He's going to give the provision for us to be able to do this together. Uh, and so that became definitely, I think that was probably the starting point of then actually having a faith and creating a faith 
that looked like my own that was very separate from what I grew up with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, we think about Jesus on the cross as kind of the ultimate moment of crisis that God's grace brings something amazing out of. And sometimes it's on a smaller level, our life crises, but combined with God's grace, sometimes some really amazing things can happen. And, you know, had you and Chris not had this experience, you probably wouldn't have had that same tangible experience of God's love and faith at that time in your life. So yeah, I always marvel when, when those kinds of stories come about. Yeah. You know, Dan, when I reflect back on it, I actually realized that I needed, I needed to get pregnant in the middle of college. Hmm. I, I actually needed that experience. I needed that um, that humbling experience because I was on my way really to to being very uh, to just being one of those like really just selfish kind of out of touch people who thought they were the cat's meow. Do you know what I mean? Like those people that uh, because of what they've accomplished and what they achieved and because of their success, like basing their identity and self-worth in their successes Mm -hmm. um, versus who they are in Christ. I was, that's like, that's the, the path that I was on. I felt like, okay. And so having, Amani at such a young age and having that experience that brought me all the way to the place where I was actually able to then um, find my the source of my strength and the source of my identity, the source of my worth, my confidence in in Christ and in what He did for us on the cross. Mm-hmm. That's so beautiful. Now it's not a given, of course, that if you're having a baby together that you decide to get married, but you and Chris did. How did you come to that decision? Yeah. So I think it, you know, we, we came to the point where, um, it, it was, we made the decision that, um, Amani, we both wanted to raise Amani with her parents, with both of her parents. That was something that we grew up, we grew up with, and we wanted to make sure that she had that experience too. But then it, it was also at some point it's like, okay, yes, but that can't be the only thing that keeps us together. And right. our parents actually discouraged us hmm. from considering or contemplating getting married just because we had a baby together. That was something that they didn't want to force on us because they knew that that wasn't a sustainable reason foundation for marriage. Right. And so it actually took, it it was multiple years before we decided to get married. And we came to that decision because, because in a sense, we, it was almost as if we kind of grew up together, you know, just like young college students at first thrown into parenthood. Um, As we're raising her, we ourselves are also growing up. And I think that the people that we grew up into um, were two people that really loved and cared for each other very much. And so it, it became about, I think, establishing a family unit just based on love, mm-hmm. just based on that desire to to raise Ambani and then our two other daughters to raise them in an environment and in a foundation of love. Mm-hmm. 
I do want to backtrack a bit before marriage because I missed the fact that, hey, you you graduated. You not only had <laughs> your daughter, but you finished school. What was that like, that moment when you'd been through so much and here now your daughter was a part of your life and Chris was still a part of your life and you walked across the proverbial stage and, and received that degree? It was It was definitely surreal because when I found out that I was pregnant, I thought that I would have to drop out. I didn't think that I would be able to finish college, but I remember my mom saying, oh no, you are finished. <laughs> you are getting that degree. If if you have to, if we have to drag you and pull you across the stage, <laughs> you're walking away with your degree. And that was, that, that became, that became like the fight. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That was the, Okay, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to to you know raise my baby and and to create a supportive and loving environment for my baby. And then it was also, and I'm going to do what I have to do to make sure that I finish and get my degree and that I graduate. And so when I actually experienced that, it took it took us an extra semester to finish Notre Dame. And once you know, one semester later, we were able to both get our degrees um, and then participate in the 2008 ceremony. Mm -hmm. And that was, it, it was an accomplishment. I feel that established a foundation of resiliency for every other hardship. Absolutely. You know, that was going to come after that uh, because if we were able to do that and I mean, it wasn't just, okay, we have the baby and now we go to class and, you know, and everything's puppies and rainbows. No, like we were working two and three jobs, taking classes like a full load, mm-hmm. you know, and raising Amani at the same time for those last two and a half years at Notre Dame. It was very challenging. It was mm-hmm. a huge challenge. And so getting our degrees and being able to say, after all of that, we're still Notre Dame graduates. Yeah, that's that definitely that set the foundation of if we could do this, then we can do anything. I'm sure that would be the case. I do want to touch on this aspect. You, you, we mentioned that you are a person of color, but your husband is not. And that can come with some challenges, even in today's society and culture. How have you navigated those waters as a married couple? I think it started with a a mutual love and respect for each other that was very separate from our skin color. Mm -hmm. And that was not dependent on the approval of anyone else. Mm -hmm. There there were members of his family that were not accepting of our relationship and that are still not accepting of our relationship. But but we made a commitment to each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that making the commitment to each other, it, it it allows both of us to help each other kind of stand up. You know, when we when we faced sort of the adversity of not receiving love and support from people that didn't approve of our relationship, um, just knowing, especially just everything that we went through in terms of having Amani. Yeah. And it, you know, it's it's almost as if when you go through experiences like that, it, it, sometimes when you encounter people 
that don't approve and um, that especially in, you know, certain climates just just aren't supportive and have nasty things to say. I mean, when you go through an experience like that, it really puts into perspective what matters and who matters. Mm-hmm. I think what it also did was it gave us an enormous appreciation for those that did support us mm-hmm. and for those that were happy for us, you know, and for those that that felt inspired by our story and that that felt inspired by our family. There were some changes that happened in both of our families toward in terms of attitudes toward interracial relationships, mm-hmm. biracial children, mm-hmm. people of color, etc. I mean attitudes that were changed as a result of meeting me or meeting him and getting to know a person outside of their race on a personal level. Yeah. Being able to form relationships with with me or relationships with him and being able to find, you know, some commonality and some common ground. I, I think that a lot of a lot of the difficulties of uh, of what we're experiencing, especially in our current climate, is a lack of like relationship. Yeah, you know, a lack of the environment to be able to sit down with someone who looks completely different from you, raised different from a completely different place than you are from, and being able to form a relationship and form uh, establish enough trust to be able to have some difficult conversations, to ask some tough questions with the intention of creating understanding and uh, creating understanding and and creating a mutual respect. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was very difficult in the beginning for certain family members that didn't approve but for but as we kind of you know went through the transition as we sort of went through time and then as people were able to see a family is a family yeah uh, um, a mom and a dad who love their children very much and are working hard to provide um, not just financially but also to provide emotionally and mentally a, a family is a family and so there were a lot of like attitudes and hearts that were changed on both sides as a result of our relationship. Mm. Wow. That's so well said and I think very timely for us in our society and our culture as a way, you know, in finding a way forward to forge those relationships and have those conversations. So I appreciate your bringing that to this podcast and to us. Yeah. Now your family grew over the course of time and you also selected a career. Could you Give us a sense of what that was, that has been like and how you've balanced those things. No, absolutely. So uh, we have three girls. As of today, we have three girls now. Amani, our oldest, who was born at Notre Dame, our Notre Dame baby. Mm-hmm. She's 15 years old. She turned 15 in January. Wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. She's in her freshman year. She's finishing up her freshman year of high school. She is a straight A-plus student. Wow. Um, she is a varsity high school varsity soccer player. 
she was a volleyball. She just finished up her volleyball season. She is uh, just an incredible, uh, she's a phenomenal student, phenomenal athlete, phenomenal older sister. She is literally um, just a godsend hmm. into our lives. Um, and then her, her younger sister, Kayla, is going to be 12 in June. And she is a, an artist. She's a dancer. She loves music. Um, she loves to create. She has phenomenal talent in dance. And and she is she's also a joy. She's our she's the stereotypical like middle child, <laughs> left handed, but the most talented like raw pure talent in the entire home. Can like dance and sing circles out of <laughs> everyone. <laughs> and then we have then we have our youngest Eliana, who's eight and a half. And so she's our she's we call her the queen. Queen Eliana, (laughs) because what she says goes, I'm sure you know, Dan, the youngest (laughs) in the family runs the house. (laughs) (laughs) So, so we have our three girls. And then I went into higher education after Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. And um, now I actually transitioned into, I became very interested in entrepreneurship several years ago, transitioned into sort of operations management and project management for a small business, um, while at the same time learning the ropes in terms of uh, sort of establishing my own brand and my own business that's focused on women's health and wellness. Hmm. So I have a, a passion definitely for entrepreneurship. I have a passion for business. Um, I have a passion for helping other women and helping moms really learn how to balance caring for themselves, caring for their health while they're still, you know, caring for their families. Wow, that's amazing to hear. I I do think that's sometimes a pitfall of parenthood is you give, give, give so much to your kids, but then you're not always taking care of yourself and then you're not able to give as much or as well to your kids. So I'm sure a lot of people are enriched by the work that you do. Yeah. Well, we call the podcast Everyday Holiness, so I warned you in advance we'd ask about this one, but what does holiness mean to you? Who are some of the holy people that have inspired you during your life up to this point? Yeah, so holiness holiness to me is a consistency between between your your spirit and your soul. Hmm. Um, so your spirit in terms of the spirit that we live through Jesus Christ and your soul, which is your, your mind, your will, and your emotions. So creating a consistency where, you know, spiritual things are not separate from normal day-to-day things. Mm -hmm. The same way that you would present yourself in front of Jesus, if he were standing in front of you is the same way you would present yourself in front of your family when everybody's running around and being crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> the, and the, there's a consistency there and not that that is perfect and not that we can never really achieve um, perfection in that area, but there's an intentionality of providing the same love and the same grace and the same mercy that we receive based on the example of Jesus. And I think that, you know, in terms of holy people, I would say 
Um, Jesus has to be <laughs> Jesus has to be right on up there at the top. Um, number one, because as I read through the, you know, as I read the gospels and I read um, just the examples of how Jesus responded to the sick, how he responded to the poor, how he responded to his critics, how he responded to people that didn't agree with him, how re- how he responded to those that crucified him, even. There's so much that can be gleaned from how he responded in all of these situations, which was very consistent. And to me, holiness is the striving to be able to mirror that. But then it's also knowing that we can't accomplish that on our own, that we can only accomplish that through the help of the Holy Spirit. And so... For me personally, I I have to make it a priority to make sure that my environment on a day-to-day basis allows for the voice of the Holy Spirit to always be there as uh, to guide and to lead and to counsel and to comfort Mm -hmm. so that my spirit and my soul are consistent so that I'm in the frame um, of mind and spirit to be able to emulate how Jesus would respond, you know, in, in sort of day-to-day situations. So I would say that's, that's what holiness is to me. That's definitely, um, Jesus is my number one uh, (laughs) inspiration for holiness and really in, in family and business at work, um, in my interactions, even with strangers, especially in our current climate of division and hatred and and all of these things, my goal is to be the best representative of Jesus I can possibly be. Hmm. Wow would would we all aspire to that? I think that would that would solve a lot of our problems. So, well, Lene, I've been incredibly inspired by this conversation on a number of levels, and I really think that our audience will be as well. Uh, I think this is one that a lot of people will share with others who need to hear your story and, and, and hear the courage with which you tell it. So thank you for your faith and certainly for your vulnerability and sharing you know, some of these moments of your life. And I really just appreciate your taking the time to come on the podcast today. Dan, thank you so much for having me. I think that it's just a joy to be able to have this conversation with you, however many years after you and I were on uh, the marching band field together um, to to come full circle and to see just what you're doing and your role and, and what you're doing at home, even as a dad. It's been a pleasure, an amazing honor. So thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. That's That's very kind. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. If you'd like to hear future episodes, we'd invite you to subscribe to our daily gospel reflection at faith.nd.edu slash signup. And of course, to subscribe and share the podcast with those close to you. Until next time, you'll be in our prayers. 